0: Well, we're in the final week of a series that we're calling Drinking the Cup. Uh, What in the world does that mean? Well, the first week of the series, we looked at a particular passage in the Bible, specifically in the New Testament, where Jesus is confronted by James and John, two of his disciples, confronted by by their mom, So James and John's mom, and we all know when mom comes into the picture, it can be a little embarrassing sometimes, right? And so mom comes in, and she basically says, hey, Jesus, would you please consider having my two sons be on your left and your right? Um, And when you sit on your earthly throne, because at the time, you know, she as well as the disciples and many of those that were excited about Jesus were actually hoping and expecting him to be on an earthly throne rather than him to obediently sacrifice himself on the cross and then rise from the dead. That wasn't even a construct in their mind. And, And so when Jesus is confronted with this question, he responds by saying, you have no idea what you're asking for. And then he says this. He says, can you drink the cup? He says this to James and John. Can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink from? And they immediately responded. We talked about this, but they said yes. They said yes. And Jesus is like, you know what? You are going to drink from this cup. And, you know, when he says that, I would imagine James and John, they're like, oh, sweet, this is going to be awesome. And Jesus is thinking, yeah, they have no idea, but they will. What does that mean? What does it mean? Can you drink the cup? that I'm about to drink from. Well, we saw how in Jesus' life, right, there was this, this, this relationship between sorrow and joy. And we see that specifically in the cross of Christ. Jesus at once saw the cross. He saw the destination for him. Why he came to the earth was to die for our sins. So there's sorrow embedded in that reality. But at the same time, he also saw the joy of his resurrection and the joy then of a eternal relationship between us and God and how sorrow and joy have this intimate connection with one another they're not polar opposites and as such it's respo- it's it's it is our responsibility then to treat the cup of life like Jesus did in that the first week when we when we talked about the cup and and what that means, we then ventured into the second week where we talked about holding the cup and how life tends to pour out suffering and sorrow into our lives. And when we experience suffering and sorrow, we use the analogy of the warhead, that candy that kids weirdly like to eat, right? Or Sour Patch Kids, right? If I eat Sour Patch Kids or Warheads, I want to spit that out because it's sour and it's painful and I don't want anything to do with it. I can't muscle through it to the sweetness. But we talked about how that's what Jesus did. He, he showed us how it is to hold the cup in the midst of our suffering and how ultimately we need to hold on to the cup of suffering long enough to experience the joy Because that's what Jesus did. And then last week, Pastor Don, our associate pastor, he talked about what it means to lift the cup. So not only hold the cup, but to lift the cup. To say, this is who I am. To be transparent, to be authentic, to be vulnerable enough to those around us, specifically in the church, to say, this is where I am. This is what Jesus did. The Son of the living God, God himself, God incarnate, walked into the Garden of Gethsemane, and what did he do? He asked His disciples to be with Him in His sorrow. And that's what we need to do. We need to invite people into our lives. Not push them away. Not try to muscle through this on our own. But to lift our cup and say, I need You. And God, I need You. And then this week, we're going to talk about what it means to then drink the cup. Drink it to its full. Right? Jesus didn't just go through the motions and then when it became hard, you know, spit it out or throw the cup away, but he drank it to its full. I've mentioned this numerous times before, but when we consider the cross of Christ, let us not think that nails are what held Jesus to that cross. That isn't what held him to the cross, Philippians chapter 2. Jesus became obedient. He became obedient to death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. It wasn't nails that held him there, but rather it was obedience. It was the knowledge that that was the only way. He he proclaimed this in his prayer about you and me in John 17 where he said, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. That's what kept him on that cross. He drank it to its full. He didn't spit it out, he didn't chew it down as fast as he could, he didn't throw the cup away, but he held it, he lifted it, and he drank it to its full. So today, we're going to finish this series by, by looking at a particular passage that has been haunting me. That might sound weird to you, but has there ever been a passage in Scripture that for a while has just haunted you? It's just it's one of those, those passages, one of those verses that God just keeps bringing back into your consciousness, and you, you can't stop thinking about it, and it just resonates. You know, have you experienced that? Well, I do. Maybe I'm weird, but that is my life. So Romans chapter 5 is what, what we're going to be looking at today, specifically verses 1 through 5. But before we get there, I want to share this quote with you. So, as I mentioned in the, in the first um, message of the series, uh, inspiration came from a book that I read by Henry Nowen, a prolific writer who his last book prior to his death in the 90s was Can You Drink the Cup? And that book got me thinking and processing about this idea, this, this, this truth of holding, lifting, and drinking the cup, and how it connects to then what, what the Bible says about how we should live our lives just as Jesus did in this vein. And in this, pa- in this book, rather, Henry Nouwen, he he writes this, and I want to share this with you before we jump into this passage. He says, often when we wish to comfort people, we say, quote, well, it is sad that this has happened to you, but try to make the best of it. But making the best of it is not what drinking the cup is about. Drinking our cup is not simply adapting ourselves to a bad situation and trying to use it as well as we can. Drinking our cup is a hopeful, courageous, and self-confident way of living. I love that. That's what we're going to be diving into, but like I said, specifically in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Now, I want to invite you to, if you have a Bible, please turn to that passage. It's in the New Testament, right after the Gospels and Acts. Can't miss it. It's a big book, written by Paul, and um, we're going to look at these five verses. If you don't have a Bible, that's totally fine. There's some in front of you. Also, if you go to the North Haven app, there's the Bible is in there as well. You can just access it or it'll be on the screen. But the reason I want you to kind of have that in your hands is because we're going to be jumping around in these verses, and I just want you to be able to to visualize as we speak. But before we dive into these verses, let's first look at this passage in its entirety, all right? Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. This is This is what it says. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. But not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. All right. Now, when we spend time in God's Word, there are two well, there are probably more than two ways of approaching God's Word, but, but a lot of times it kind of looks like one of these two ways. Predominantly, it will be a devotional of some sort where we read a passage, and after we're done reading the passage, you know, we, we think, oh, that was good. We might read really something like that someone writes about that passage, and we might think, wow, that, that, really, that really helps bring that to light. That That was good, that was nurturing. And sometimes that is a good way to approach it, but we can't have that be our only approach to Scripture because Scripture in and of itself, because it's living and active, because it's organic, because it interacts with us, it requires for us to dive in and to say, God, what are you trying to tell me here? And to wrestle with it. And I've been wrestling with this passage for a long time, well beyond this week. So we're going to break it down. We're going to break it down to its core. We're going to dig it up out of the roots and try to, try to see what we can, what we can find. And in doing so, I'm going to do something that's going to maybe kind of freak out some of you who like to have things like in order, right? Because I'm going to be jumping all around this passage. But in verses 1 through 5, we're not going to start with verse 1. Rather, we're going to start with verse 3. And in verse 3, the second half of verse 3, mind you, this is what we start off with. We know that suffering produces perseverance. We know that suffering produces perseverance. We have to look at this word suffering first. Now, we've been talking over these last few weeks about suffering or sorrow. What is that? How can we, how can we make that a tangible thing so we can understand? Now, when we approach Scripture, some of you may know this, but some of you may not. and That's totally fine. but but scripture in and of itself was predominantly written in two different languages the old testament in hebrew and the new testament in greek but specifically ancient greek a greek that's not spoken anymore and when you go into scripture and you start dissecting these things it is often helpful to understand the original language now some of those things are obvious and suffering sorrow is maybe a little bit more obvious than others but still helpful. So when we look at this word suffering and we consider what is the Greek meaning, we see words that, that really resonate with our everyday experience. Words like distress or persecution, affliction, hardship, or Troubles. Now, if I ask for a show of hands, you know, if it, there's anybody in this room who's experiencing anything that resonates in those, you know, different areas, I would imagine the majority of us would raise our hands. It's a natural part of life, suffering and sorrow, because life ebbs and flows, right? We're on the mountaintop one minute, and then we're in the valley the next, But let's go a little bit further because not only do we need to understand that word, but we have to understand the word in the context of the words that follow. So this what what is this word produces? Suffering produces perseverance. What? Now when we think of produces, we think of, of like cause and effect. You know, this happens and then that happens. But that's not actually what this word is meaning. The Greek word for this means accomplishes. Now that creates a whole different understanding of this because instead of it saying suffering then, then leads to this, it says that suffering accomplishes this. You know what that means? That means that sorrow and suffering then have a purpose. It's not happenstance. It's not fate but it has a purpose. It is accomplishing something. So what is it accomplishing? How is it that we can understand even more why it is that we experience sorrow and suffering in our lives? Well, what is it, what is it accomplishing? It says that suffering produces, accomplishes perseverance. Perseverance. Now, perseverance, the Greek word for that means a steadfastness. Steadfastness or or endurance or patience or persistence. Now, what's really interesting about this word, when we think of perseverance, you might automatically think of of, uh, uh, going through a brick wall. You know, just muscling through, right? I mean, what's that phrase? If you're going through hell... Keep going. That's not what this is saying. Rather, what this is saying is it's actually not not um, uh, signifying any movement at all. But rather, it's talking about holding the cup. Persevering, that is, remaining steadfast, patient in the midst of your sorrow. Enduring in the midst of your sorrow. Being persistent in your drawing close to God because what does God promise in His Word? When we draw close to God, He then draws close to us. And we draw close to God by being in His Word, by worshiping Him, by by spending time in prayer, holding the cup, being steadfast, not gulping it down as fast as we can, not throwing it away, but persevering. Now, I, you know, God is a God of systems, and I love that. You know, we, we, I say this again. God's not a God of happenstance. He's not a God of fate. He's a God of systems. We see that right away when he creates. In Genesis chapter 1, it's a system of creation. There's order. And here we see another evidence of that that when when the cup of life produces sorrow in our lives that that sorrow has a purpose and it accomplishes our ability to remain steadfast to persevere to be patient and persistent so let's let's move forward now so Romans chapter 5 verse 4 So we've seen now suffering and um, uh, perseverance, and then it says perseverance, character, character. What in the world does that mean, right? I mean, I could say, or maybe some of you are saying, that Adam, he's quite a character. Now that wouldn't be a good thing, probably. That's not what we're talking about here. Actually, the word here in Greek means proven character. Now, because of sin, because sin is entered into the world, because we are born into sin. We see that right away when a baby's born. We're like, that baby's sinful. You know, I mean, it's just a part, it's a part of our nature. That's the way it is. We are separated from God because of sin. Because of sin, we disappoint each other. We are always going to disappoint one another. You're going to disappoint me. I'm going to disappoint you. That's a part of relationship. It's a part of life. But there is someone who never disappoints. There is someone who never fails, and that is God. He, he remains true. He never leaves us, nor does he ever forsake us. And so our character isn't proven. His is. His is. So what is this what is this saying what is Paul telling us here He's telling us that when we experience sorrow it has a purpose it is accomplishing something So it is accomplishing then our ability to persevere to not muscle through but to remain steadfast patient listening to God pursuing God holding on to that cup long enough to experience the joy And then when we do that, we then become aware and experience the proven character of God. The beauty and majesty of a God who will never leave you, who will never forsake you, who will always remain true, who's the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So then further in verse 4, Paul goes, he goes to the next rung of the ladder, right? He says, in character, hope. In character, hope. Now, this, this word for hope, now this is an interesting word because, again, because of our vernacular, we use hope for a whole myriad of things. I mean, it's basically the, the, the mantra of being a Vikings fan, right? It should be right on the top of U.S. Bank Stadium. But that's not what this word is. Hope defined is expectation, This this word that's used, this Greek word, means expectation. So it's not a want to. It's not a uh, cross your fingers. Maybe it'll happen. That'd be really wonderful if it did. That's not what this hope is. Rather, it is an expectation. It is a certainty. It is an assuredness. That's the difference between the world's hope, and biblical hope. The world's hope is that wish, that want, that cross your fingers. Biblical hope is certainty. We expect. We're assured. Certainty of what will happen that for those who are saved will be in God's presence for eternity and certainty of who will always be there. God will never leave us. So then then we're going to backtrack a little bit. Now we're going to go to verse 2, but we're going to go to the second half of verse 2. I told you I was going to drive you crazy this morning. So in verse 2 it says, We boast in the hope of the glory of God. All right, that makes sense, but then he goes the extra mile and he says in verse three, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. What in the world? Why would we do that? Well, it's interesting here. When you you got to pause, and again, we just, we we can't just read. We have to invest, and when we invest, we find that this word glory, in the Greek, actually means boast. It means to be pride, or to take pride in our sufferings. So why would we boast in our sufferings? Why would we do that? Well, we boast because the hope that it produces is expected and assured for those who believe. That's why we boast in our sufferings, because it's not it's not because we like to suffer. It's not like because we like whipping ourselves on the back. No, it's because we know that our suffering, that our sorrow has a purpose. It is accomplishing something. It's giving us the ability to remain persistent, to remain steadfast, to be patient, to hold that cup of suffering long enough to see the joy. But it's also giving us the ability and the awareness of seeing the proven character of God in our lives and thus Being assured of our eternity with Him and His presence in our lives. Hope. So in Romans chapter 5, verse 5. Paul says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Meaning that shame, the Greek meaning for that word is humiliation or embarrassment. That means that this hope isn't going to disappoint you. It's not going to embarrass you. It's not going to put you to shame. It's going to be true. And then the important word, us. Who is us at the end of verse 5 there? The us is those who have given their lives to Jesus Christ, who have decided to follow Him and to make Him the leader of their lives. The Bible says that when we do that, we are saved, and we are then promised an eternity with God. See, we are all eternal beings. Not not, Not only everybody in this room, but everybody in the world. We're either going to be in eternity with God or without Him. But the Bible says that when we give our hearts to Jesus Christ, when we give our lives to Him, that we are promised eternity with God. So now we jump all the way to verse 1 where it says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this word justified is so important. Because when, because of our sin, because of the sin that entered into the world and that's ingrained in each and every single one of us, there's this chasm between humanity and imperfect humanity and a perfect holy God. And it is impossible for us to bridge that gap. And so instead of us coming to God, which was impossible, God had to come to us, which he did through Jesus Christ. And then Jesus, through his obedience, died on the cross and created a bridge of that cross so that we could cross over and be justified, be made right with God. And because we've been made right with God, we see in in verse 2 where it says, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand that gained access when you give your life to Jesus Christ, the door is then opened for you to receive grace. You know what grace is? Grace is the unmerited favor of God, meaning that there's nothing that you or you or you or I can do to receive that. It's freely given. Because in Romans chapter two, it's or chapter five verse two, through whom we have gained access, as as doors been opened by faith, by believing in Jesus Christ, by giving our lives to Him, we then get the grace in which we now stand. So if we're to break this down into a diagram of sorts, we can see here that the cup is what we start off with, right? The cup of life. And then with the cup of life, we experience sorrow, we experience suffering. And then what Paul here is saying is that, is that that suffering, it isn't just happenstance. It is accomplishing something. It has a purpose. And that purpose is to give us perseverance, the ability to remain steadfast, the ability to be patient, to hold that cup long enough to see the joy, which then makes us aware of God's proven character and to experience the goodness of that which then leads to hope. Certainty, expectation. And so, as such, we see that the cup is life and and suffering is sorrow and perseverance is steadfast and the proven character of God and then the expectation of hope. But then, even more detailed and important is that life ebbs and flows, doesn't it? Doesn't it? And sorrow finds us in surprising places in moments, in life. You see, sorrow is what life puts in. Because it ebbs and flows, we we don't subject ourselves willingly to sorrow. That's not what we're looking for, but it finds us, doesn't it? But then Paul's saying here that perseverance is what we put in. That is a a commitment and a willingness to hold this cup just as Jesus did, to not throw it away, but to be patient in the midst of our suffering. And then this is the cool part, the character, the proven character. The proven character that we see in Scripture, how God has proven himself through his word, the proven character that he reveals in, in, in our prayer with him, in our time with Him, the proven character of His creation, and how the rocks cry out His name. And then the proven character that we experience in our, in our life, in our situations, all that comes into play, and that's what He puts in. He, he proves that. He doesn't need our help, that is who He is. And then the certainty, the expectation that we have because of that. Now, this is only made possible because of God's love that he perfectly displayed through Jesus Christ. And this is the cool part. Because this isn't isn't just a one-time thing. That'd be really nice, wouldn't it? If If we just one time experienced sorrow and went through this process, right? That's not how life is. But this is what's awesome. This is a cyclical process. And when we... Give our life to Jesus Christ, and we invest in this. When we understand that the cup of life, that it produces suffering, life puts in suffering, but that in the midst of that suffering, it accomplishes, it has a purpose to give us the persistence and the patience that we need to hold that cup long enough to see the joy, and then we experience and see the character, the proven character of God, and then the certainty of hope. You know what that does? That strengthens us. In our relationship with God and prepares us for that next moment even more. So, when suffering comes again, it's not easy. But we've already seen the proven character of God. We've already become aware and we know of the certainty of His hope. And then it comes again. But we've already seen and we've already experienced. And then it comes again. But this is the key. I want to help you understand that we can get from here to here. But that's only possible once you have gained access And gaining access means that you have decided to give your life to Jesus Christ. You're not trying to fill that void or that hole with anything else. But you understand that there is a hope that will never fail, that will never diminish, that will never disappoint. And you willingly step forward and you say, I want that. And the Bible says that that he will give it freely, that God will give it freely, and that is what grace is. You don't have to perform a certain ritual. You don't have to have a master's degree in theology. You don't have to be a certain age. All you have to do is say, yes, that's what I want. Just put out your hand and accept the grace, the amazing grace that God provides through his son Jesus. This is what I'd like to ask you to do here this morning. For everyone here, would you would you close your eyes and bow your heads, please? Now, there is somebody in this room. Now, I don't know, I don't know who you are. But I know because... God has revealed to me or spoken to me that today is a day in which there is somebody who's here for a specific divine purpose. You are not here because of some fate. You are here because God wants you here. And this is the moment. This is the moment where he desires for you to simply reach out your hand to say, yes, I I accept your gift of grace come into my life and change me. I want that hope that never fails, that never disappoints, that never diminishes. If that's you, in just a moment, if that's you, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. No one's going to be looking. No one's going to be, you know, looking around and wondering who that is. I'm the only one that's going to see that. But then there's some of you here today who have a relationship with Jesus And because it's hard, and I get it, it's hard when you're holding that cup of life and it's filled with sorrow. All you want to do is throw that away, or you want it to go away, or you want to drink it down as fast as you can. But God's saying, hold on to this. It's really hard to see the purpose when you're in the midst of the sorrow but there is purpose in your sorrow. It is accomplishing something. And if you remain steadfast and patient in the midst of your sorrow, you will witness and experience the proven character of God. And then you will also be reminded of the certainty and the promise of hope that you have because of Him. If you would like to recommit, rededicate, if you would like to today say, God, in the midst of my suffering, I am going to hold that cup and I am going to remain patient and steadfast so that you can prove to me your beautiful character and remind me of your never-ending hope. If that's you, in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand as well. And then we'll pray. So if you're making a decision to follow Jesus for the first time, or if you need to recommit or rededicate your life to Christ and to commit to holding that cup, then on the count of three, I want you to raise your hand on the count of three. One, two, three. Yes. I want you to pray with me this prayer. Father God. I need you, I need you, I can't do this on my own, I believe that you're the Son of God, I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and that you rose from the dead, having defeated death and providing a way for me to have life everlasting. Change me. Reveal to me the hope that will never fade, that will never disappoint, and lead me in the way everlasting. I choose to follow you and to make you the leader of my life. Amen.